0: that you would have our hearts this morning, God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well last week uh, we got things started with a poll question and since that went so well, I figured we would try that again this week. Uh, And and the poll question I wanted to get started with today is this. How many of you have ever served on a jury before? Wow, a lot of you. Now, You can keep your hands up. How many of you believe that the jury you served on got it wrong? Okay. Well, about 14 years ago, right after I bought my first house, uh, I was summoned to serve on a jury. I got called in, and I I showed up for jury duty, and I actually got picked to sit on a jury, so I don't really know what that says about me. But I'll never forget that experience, because throughout the course of the trial... There was one thing that became abundantly clear to me during this trial. And that was I was 100% convinced that the man standing in front of us accused of a crime was guilty. Like, it was a no doubter that he was guilty. And part of how I knew that he was guilty is that he actually admitted on the stand what he did. So he, he told us that he had done the thing that he was accused of. He justified himself He tried to explain it away. But he admitted his guilt. And so you can imagine my surprise when we went to deliberate the trial uh, to find out that I was the only juror of our entire pool of jurors who thought this man was guilty. Everybody else bought his justification and thought he was innocent. Now, if you've ever been on a trial before, the the, the jury needs to come to consensus in order to... uh, Render a verdict in the case. And so we deliberated for a while. And this case, it, like, it, he was not on trial for murder. This was a relatively small case. I mean, we're talking like a fine in probation, and probation. We're going to move on if he is found guilty. But we're deliberating this case. And it goes on and on and on and on. And we can't come to agreement. And the judge is a little bit frustrated and upset. Because it's a small case that should just be able to get moved on quickly. But by the end of the night, we can't come to a consensus. And so he sends us home with orders to come back and make a decision in the morning. We all come back, and I'm still holding strong. I'm like, he's guilty. He told us that he was guilty. He told us what he did. And yet still, all the other jurors wanted to declare him innocent. And we continue arguing for hours and hours. And the judge at this point is pretty frustrated with us. He wants us to make a decision and move on. And he believes that we can. And my fellow jurors are furious at me because they just want to go home. Like, they don't want to be here anymore. You get paid like $25 a day for this. And I don't want to be there. I'm like a 22-year-old kid. And this is a small case. And I'm like, I want to go home. And so finally, after two days of holding out strong, I finally just said, you know what? If you want to declare him innocent... That's on your hands. We found him innocent and we all went home. Okay? Now please don't shame me for this. Remember I was a 22 year old kid. (laughs) But have you ever been in a situation like that? Where you faced that kind of pressure? Well that's the kind of pressure that Pilate is dealing with in the trial of Jesus. Except this isn't like a small case. It's not a fine and probation that we're dealing with. It's a man's life. It's Jesus' life that's at stake. And Jesus has a whole lot more riding on this. And Pilate has a lot more riding on this. And the crowds have a lot more riding on this than some small case here in Des Moines, Iowa. And the screams of the crowds and their pressure, it's incessant. They will not stop. And the truth in this situation, the, the truth of, of, of the case, that is not unclear. But the pressure and the demands for Pilate to cave to that pressure and abandon truth is incredibly strong. That is the scene in Luke 23 that we arrive at. And and this is how that that incessant pressure of the crowds is how we arrive at a place where in Luke 23, we're going to see Jesus sentenced to death, even though Pilate, the judge, is utterly convinced of his innocence. And we're going to study this sentencing of Jesus through the three major themes that show up in the text. The innocence of Jesus, the irony of Barabbas, and the iron will of God. Those are the three major themes that are woven throughout this text. The innocence of Jesus, the irony of Barabbas, and the iron will of God. And the place we're going to start is by looking at the innocence of Jesus. And we start there because of all of the themes that are in this text, this is the one that stands out above all the others. This is the most glaring theme in Luke 23. The innocence of Jesus, it almost suffocates the rest of the text. We've got to remember our context here. We said, Last week, that the real trial of Jesus, it has already taken place before the Sanhedrin. The Jewish ruling council, the Supreme Court of the Land, the real trial of Jesus, it took place early in the morning of his arrest, before the Sanhedrin, and in that real trial the accusation was blasphemy, that he was a man who lifted himself as equal to God, the guilty verdict was rendered, and from that point on, Jesus really was a man condemned to die. But instead of stoning Jesus, which is what the Jews did to execute prisoners, they make a, a risky move. See, stoning will not do. They want Jesus to be crucified. And so instead of executing Jesus, they shift the trial to the Romans, to Pilate and to Herod, because Romans. They crucify people. And they want Jesus to be crucified. To suffer. And to be made an example. And they come before Pilate and Herod. And they try to convince the Romans to crucify Jesus. And they've launched every accusation they can possibly come up with against Jesus. They accuse him before Pilate. They accuse him before Herod. And now the trial has shifted back in front of Pilate. And this is the verdict that Pilate reaches as Jesus is brought back before him. It says this in Luke twenty-three, thirteen. Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people. And he said to them, You have brought me this man as one who misleads or subverts the people. As one who stirs people up as an insurrectionist. But in fact, after examining him in your presence... I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. And and the whipping that is being referenced here in verse 16, this is not the scourging that Jesus receives before his crucifixion. This whipping, it's a light punishment that... Pilate would have given to anybody who stands trial before him because if you're standing trial before Pilate, what you need is a beating to remind you, hey, you might be innocent this time, but be careful. Be careful who you are around. Be careful that you keep yourself innocent because I don't want to see you again. And next time you might not be so lucky. That's the whipping that Pilate is going to give Jesus and then release him because he's convinced of the innocence of Jesus. He says, I found no grounds to charge this man with the things that you are accusing him of. And it wasn't just Pilate who found him innocent. It was also Herod. Herod found Jesus to be innocent. Pilate says, neither has Herod because he sent him back to us. If Herod had found Jesus guilty, he would not have sent him back to Pilate. He would have had him executed. He would have killed him, but he didn't. Because Herod is convinced of the innocence of Jesus. And if you get outside of our text in Luke 23, you find that also Judas found Jesus to be innocent. Even Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus in the first place and handed him over, he found Jesus to be innocent. When Jesus was dragged to the trial before Pilate, Judas saw it. Judas saw Jesus before Pilate. And it destroyed his conscience. And he goes back to the people who had paid him off to betray Jesus. He throws the money back to them. And it says this in Matthew 27. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was full of remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He said this in verse 4. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Even Judas was convinced of the innocence of Jesus. And Pilate, in our text in Luke 27, or Luke 23, he's emphatic about the innocence of Jesus. He he is strangely emphatic about the innocence of Jesus. And Pilate, I believe he knows Jesus is innocent for a number of reasons. But for one thing, Pilate knows he's innocent just on the basis of the accusations alone. Consider this. Pilate is not a dumb man. He knows that the Jews don't want the Romans ruling over them he like he's been around the block he understands the way that this works and when there is somebody who is an insurrectionist they don't hand that man over to the romans and say hey this man was trying to come after you guys they rally around him they support the insurrectionist and jesus is not an insurrectionist pilate knows it he knows it because they wouldn't be handing him over to him if he was And also, Pilate knows what guilty people act like on trial. See, how many people do you think have stood before Pilate on trial? A lot. (laughs) A lot. And people aren't that hard to read. You know, I think sometimes people think that they're sneaky, or that they can hide things pretty well. People just aren't that hard to read, especially when you spend a lot of time with people i say, by and large, people are actually very easy to read. Especially when you spend a ton of time with people. And Pilate has spent a ton of time with people, and in particular, facing criminals. And the thing about Jesus is that Jesus is a man who just exudes goodness. He radiates goodness. Everybody around Jesus... Knew that there was something different and special about Jesus. Jesus radiates goodness. And as he's on trial, I mean, think about the way that Jesus is conducting himself while on trial. Compared to probably every other person that Jesus or that Pilate has seen on trial, Jesus is a man who is totally at peace. He, he's a man who is totally under control of the situation. He he is a man who doesn't revile his accusers, but actually loves his enemies. See, when somebody loves their enemies and doesn't revile them, it's easy to see. Bitterness is easy to see, but so too is love. And Jesus is full of love for his enemies. The instruction of of Christ is that we would not revile those who revile us, but that we would pray for those who come after us. And you can only imagine, Jesus is not a hypocrite. And so as he stands trial, he's conducting himself in ways that I bet Pilate has never seen. And because of that, he is utterly convinced of the innocence of Jesus. Jesus. He knows that Jesus is innocent and he wants him to be released. And when the Jews keep pressing him, Pilate again, he states his case. He says, this man is innocent. Verse 20, wanting to release Jesus instead of Barabbas, addressed them again. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time, he said to them, why, what has this man done wrong? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. And this is Pilate we're talking about. He, he's, Pilate is not a good, honorable man, but he is thoroughly convinced of the innocence of Jesus. And Luke wants us to understand without a shadow of a doubt the innocence of Christ. But then we contrast that with Barabbas. And I want us to see the irony here of Barabbas, the irony of Barabbas. And just to understand a little bit of the backdrop here where where Barabbas is going to be released instead of Jesus, the, the arrest and the trial of Jesus, it's taking place in Jerusalem at a massive festival called the Passover. And apparently there was a custom during this Holy Week, during the Passover festival, where one prisoner, one Jewish prisoner would be released back to the Jews. And so Pilate is hoping that the Jews will select Jesus as the prisoner that gets released back to them because he's convinced, again, of Jesus's innocence. But that's not going to happen because the Jews are the ones in the first place who brought Jesus to Pilate as a prisoner. And so instead of releasing Jesus, the Jews all demand that Pilate released a man by the name of Barabbas, okay? And we don't know a whole lot about Barabbas, but we do know this. Barabbas is the anti-Jesus. Barabbas, he is the poster child of not-Jesus, and this is the irony of Barabbas. For all the accusations of the Jews that came against Jesus, the one that they pressed the most in front of Pilate is that Jesus is an insurrectionist, a man who stirs up the crowds, who stirs up the people, and is lifting himself up in order to oppose Rome. Now, Jesus is a lot of things, but Jesus is not an insurrectionist. But do you know who is? Barabbas. Barabbas. Barabbas is like, he's literally in jail because he was an insurrectionist. Someone who stirred up the people for rebellion against Rome. And you know what else he's in jail for? Murder. That's what it tells us in verse 19. Barabbas, he stirred up the people in rebellion. And he was a murderer. So you have Jesus, the giver of life. The one who literally raised Lazarus from the dead the one who traveled all over the country healing people, and you have Barabbas, the murderer, the taker of life. And you know what's crazy? The Jews want the murderer back in their community, not Jesus. They would rather have a murderer in their temple than Jesus. They, they would rather have a murderer spending time with their kids than Jesus. And the question you've got to ask is this. Why would you want an insurrectionist murderer in your community, in your temple, in your home rather than Jesus? Jesus. Why would you ever do that? Well, we know jealousy played a big part. They were jealous of Jesus. They hated him in their bitter jealousy. And we've got to be careful about what jealousy can do. But here's the big principle that I think is driving all of this forward. The reason that they wanted the insurrectionist murderer instead of Jesus is that Barabbas, the insurrectionist, he scratched the desires of their flesh in a way that Jesus utterly refused to, so they were willing to accept Barabbas the murderer. Barabbas the insurrectionist gave them something they wanted, so they were willing to accept Barabbas the murderer back into their community, into their temple, into their homes. And here's what we mean by this. In their flesh, the Jews, they actually wanted exactly what Barabbas could offer. They, they wanted insurrection. They wanted power and control and more freedom than they had under the Roman rule. Barabbas offered something that their flesh craved. They did not want somebody like Jesus who just kept pressing into their sin and seemed utterly unconcerned with their desire See, they wanted somebody like Barabbas. They wanted somebody who was going to give them what they want. They wanted somebody who was going to scratch the itch of their flesh and their fleshly desires. And when Jesus does not gratify the desires of our flesh, our impulse often is to go looking for someone who will, even if it means bringing the murderer into our home, or bringing the adulteress into, into our home. You see, this is the way that sin works in us. Okay, James 1 says this. Each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires, fleshly desires. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Sin is like inviting a murderer into your home. It's going to kill you. That's what sin is like. And I don't think people are generally self-destructive. So why do we do it? Because sin promises to meet the, the demands of our flesh. Sin always promises. Sin always appeals to the desires, the cravings of our flesh. Think about what your flesh desires. Do you know yourself very well? Do you know what your flesh desires? Think about what your flesh desires. And see, one of the hardest things in the world is to say no to the desires of our flesh. And so oftentimes what we're doing as people is we're like straddling a fence, okay? We are trying to appease the desires of our flesh, gratify the desires of our flesh in ways that won't get us killed. We're trying to scratch the itch of our flesh, but do it in a way that keeps us out of trouble, that prevents us from experiencing the consequence of gratifying our flesh. People are often straddling offense. And people in the church, Christians, people who call themselves Christians, and even those who genuinely are in Christ, we are not above this. We can have a conscience that's been completely seared to our sin, and we live our lives. Constantly straddling this fence. Seeking to gratify the desires of our flesh. Hoping to stay out of trouble. Gratify, scratch the itch, but not too much. So that the murderer doesn't actually get in our home. But see, gratifying the desires of your flesh, it is inviting the murderer into your home. Saying no to the desires of our flesh, it is one of the most difficult things in the world. The desire of the flesh, it is so powerful. Lust is incredibly powerful. Greed. The desire for possessions. Comfort. Pleasure. These desires that have justified all kinds of lack of obedience or just outright disobedience to the Lord. These desires are incredibly powerful. And that little drip, drip, drip of desire, it wears on people. You ever had poison ivy before? So tempting to just scratch that itch. Oh, and when you do, it is satisfaction for like 10 seconds. And then you've got to scratch it again. And then it's satisfying for about five seconds and then you gotta scratch again. And then it's not really satisfying when you're not scratching and you just have to constantly be scratching. And as you do, it feels so good and simultaneously so bad because eventually you're just tearing your flesh off, okay? That's like the desire of the flesh. It's like an itch. It's like poison ivy. And when that little drip, drip, drip of desire is gnawing away at us, feels like that itch must be scratched. And when you go looking to have that itch scratched, you will not find Jesus. The problem is, you will find Barabbas. You will find the murderer who's going to destroy your family. Who's going to destroy your heart for God. He'll scratch the itch. But he will destroy your heart for worship. Pornography will scratch the itch. But it will destroy your heart for worship. It will ruin your family. Manipulation or control. Manipulating your kids. Controlling your kids. Manipulating your spouse. Controlling your spouse. It will scratch the itch. But it will gut your heart for worship. It will destroy your family. Comfort and pleasure, social media, living vicariously other people's lives, it'll scratch the itch, but it will destroy your heart for worship. Food, drink, alcohol, it can scratch the itch, but it will gut your heart for worship. It all comes at a price, and the greatest price is your heart of worship when we go looking to gratify the flesh, we forfeit real worship in the Spirit. You see, when my heart's not full of real worship for Christ, and when the church is not full of real worship for Christ, what is the issue? Is the issue that God is not real? Is the issue that that God is not good? Is the issue that the worship team just isn't good enough? No. No. I'm looking to gratify my flesh, and when you are looking to gratify your flesh, you won't find Jesus. Jesus does not love your flesh. Jesus hates your flesh. He loves you, and he wants to give you real life in the Spirit. And you can't sow to the flesh and re- reap real worship in the Spirit. Galatians 6, Paul, he says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, he will also reap. That's a terrifying verse. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. And sowing to the flesh and sowing to the Spirit are two completely incompatible things. It is a choice between the two. You can't scratch the itch of the desires of your flesh while sowing to the Spirit. It will not do. That's not the fence that you're straddling. You're either starving your flesh so that you can sow to the Spirit or you are starving the Spirit and sowing to your flesh. Galatians five 6, or 5.16, Paul says, I say then walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. They are incompatible with each other. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. He's saying the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit, they are in absolute and utter opposition to each other. There, there is no fence to straddle Sowing to the flesh and the spirit. You cannot scratch the itch of the desires of your flesh and reap life in the spirit. If you are looking to gratify the desires of your flesh you will find destruction you are inviting the murderer in to your heart and into your home in romans 8 paul says so then brothers and sisters we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh because if you live according to the flesh you're going to die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live God's instruction is this. Don't gratify the desires of your flesh. Don't do it. Don't release the murderer. Don't invite him in. Go after Jesus. Abandon your flesh and go after Jesus. Jesus will set you free. Jesus, however, will never gratify the desires of your flesh. He's taking us in the opposite direction to real Life in the Spirit. And the Lord knows I need this truth. Ephesians 4, I recite this passage just about every morning in my basement, just speaking to the Lord. But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, to take off the former way of life, the old self that is being corrupted by deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. And see, if we don't do that, if we will not take off our former way of life and put on the new self created in Christ to pursue him... If we don't put on the new life in the Spirit through Christ, then we are going to find ourselves welcoming Barabbas into our hearts and into our homes over and over again and putting the Son of God on the cross. You see, the crowds, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, I am convinced, I don't know about you, but I am convinced that, see, somewhere inside of them, they did have a fear of God. I think somewhere inside of them, they had... You see, people are complicated. People aren't just all bad and all good. I think somewhere inside of them, they had some sort of fear of God, some love of God. But they are acting in ways here in Luke 23 that are utterly insane, completely irrational. They've totally gone off the deep end. They're putting an innocent man to death on a cross... And I don't think they started with that in mind. But you see, their, their desires for the flesh at some point led them into utter insanity. They were seeking to gratify their flesh, gratify the desire for power, for control. See, did they get into religious leadership because of the desire for power and control? I don't know. But probably not, or at least not entirely. But at some point, that little drip, drip, drip of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, it grabbed hold of their heart and they gave into it. They crossed the line. They seared their conscience. And they started to justify all kinds of sin in their lives. And you see, once you start scratching, it's very hard to stop. And sin in our life, it doesn't get less crazy over time it gets more and more risky. Once you justify one thing, it's a lot easier to justify it again. It's like breaching a dam. Once the water gets through, all the other water is coming right behind it. And pretty soon your life can be spiraling out of control and you're just trying to keep a lid on it, straddling the fence, gratifying my flesh, hoping not to get in trouble. See, this is why preaching doesn't land sometimes. Because I've already quit trying. I'm actually living a different life. I might be here in the church. I might profess Christ. But I already quit trying a long time ago. The, The game I'm playing, the life I'm trying to live, is straddling the fence, gratify my flesh, hope not to get in trouble. And Jesus says you can't live that way where your life is going to spiral out of control because you're inviting murder into your home and into your heart. Now in saying all of that, I want us to see our last theme in the passage, okay? Because even when this scene in Luke 23 looks totally out of control, and even in our lives, we can look at our lives and and feel like it is spiraling out of control. Even still, we can't miss that in all of this, It is the will of God that prevails, the iron will of God in everything happening in our lives and in everything going on in Luke 23. We need to see that none of it is beyond the sovereign goodness of our God. I want you to see something in Luke 23. By the time that we get to Luke 23, verse 23, Pilate has already declared Jesus innocent three times. But this is what happens. They kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And their voices won out. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and released the one that they were asking for. who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder. But he handed Jesus over to their will. Three times, Pilate declares, I am handing this man over to the will of these evil, wicked people. Who are going to crucify Jesus. Three times. Pilate he he tells them. He is handing Jesus over. To the will of this evil wicked crowd. But who is in control of all of it? Is it really the will of these evil people? It is God. Who is sovereignly in control. Over all of it. You know, Luke, he wrote about this exact scene again. Luke, he didn't just write the gospel of Luke. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, Luke records for us a sermon that Peter preached at Pentecost. And this is what Luke records for us. As Peter, he's bringing the people back to this very scene. And the people that Peter is preaching to, some of them were probably part of these crowds who, who thought that they were in control, that their will was winning out here. And Peter tells them this in Acts 2.23, Though he was delivered up, it was according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. You used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him, and God raised him up. And this is so important. Pilate handing Jesus over to the will of the crowds, it is real. It is real that they did have a will and Pilate really did hand them over to the will of the people. And yet at the same time, God is absolutely and utterly in control of all of it. It is all happening according to God's determined plan. It's like this little window into the mystery of how even in our evil, it all plays out in perfect harmony with God's good Perfect and pleasing plan. What they desired for evil, God planned for good. And the point is this even when life feels like it's spiraling out of control, you have to understand and rejoice in the truth that there is a sovereign, good God who is always in control, who is always good, who has a plan, who is in control of all of it, and who purchased your forgiveness through the blood of Christ on that cross. And who is absolutely willing to give you life through the Spirit by faith in Christ. If you are simply willing to come to Jesus. Jesus hates your flesh and he will not give an inch to your flesh. But he loves you dearly. And he will give you life through the Spirit. And I just want to close with one application today. Which is this. Stop scratching your flesh. And come to Jesus. If you want life in the Spirit, you can't find it by gratifying your flesh. You have to come to Jesus. I don't know what it is in your life. I don't know what it is for everybody here. But if you are gratifying the desires of your flesh, whatever that little drip, drip, drip of desire is that is gnawing at you, lay it down and come to Christ. Go to Jesus instead. Go to Him in faith, and He will give you life through the Spirit. He will restore your heart of worship through the Spirit even as your flesh is starved.